0: Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14. We heard in the call to worship the introduction to the book of Zechariah. Then we heard in chapter 6 one of the visions of Zechariah. Then we heard in chapter 8 the section about the question that the people of Israel had about fasting and God's response to it. And now in chapter 14, we hear one of the two oracles at the end of the book, the first of the oracles to the nations, the second of the oracles to Israel, an oracle usually producing something of bad news. In this case, it is good news for Israel. It culminates in chapter 14. I start in verse 1. Behold, a day is coming, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured and the houses plundered, the women ravished and half the city exiled, but the rest of this people will not be cut off from the city Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So that half the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And in that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at evening time there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, and the other half toward the western sea. It will be summer. As well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one. And his name, the only one. This is the living word of our living God. Would you bow with me? Father, we weep with gratitude over these verses and the coming promise of the one who will be king, the one who will be Lord, the one who will be king from the temple and serve as our priest, and by whom we will have access to you. What a day of rejoicing that will be. And because that day is certain, we rejoice in this day as well. We thank you, our Father, that you are trustworthy in these things. And that what you have promised will come about It's good news for Israel. It's good news for us. Might we, as a result of our time in this amazing book, be stimulated, exhorted, encouraged, compelled to steadfastness, resoluteness, confidence, peace, and rest because we believe in the coming King. Would you transform us even as we take one last look at this book together? And might we be more fit servants for you because of what we find here. In Christ's name, amen. In his book, The body, a guide for occupants, Bill Bryson talks to us about memories, our memories. Short term memory, he says, is really short. No more than half a minute or so for things like addresses and phone numbers. Most people's short term memory is pretty abysmal. Six random words or digits is about all that most of us can reliably retain for more than a few moments. On the other hand, with effort, we can train our memories to perform the most extraordinary stunts. Every year, the United States has a national memory championship, and the feats performed there are truly astounding. One memory champion could recall 4,140 random digits after looking at them for only 30 minutes. Yeah, not me. And I doubt it was you either. Uh, we We are prone to forget, aren't we? We are prone not to remember. Which means that we need to work at remembering. And we particularly need to work at remembering God and His grace and His provisions and His care. Why should we work at remembering God's provision and God's care for us? Because godly remembrance fortifies us for present faithfulness. When we remember God's nature and what God has done in the past, we are emboldened to persevere in our present problems. After the nation of Israel had been in captivity in Babylon and Medo-Persia for 70 years, the nation began returning at the conclusion of that 70-year captivity to its promised land, Israel. And as they returned, the foundation for the temple was quickly erected and then opposition to the rebuilding of the temple propped up. And because they forgot the promises of God or perhaps they believed that God forgot his promises they became fearful, and work stopped on the temple, and they did nothing on the rebuilding of the temple for 20 years. The empty foundation became a testimony of Israel's fear and unbelief. And into that fear, God brought a series of men, including two prophets, to exhort and encourage the Israelites about God's promise and God's care for his people. And one of those prophets was Haggai and the other, Zechariah. And it is Zechariah's message that we have been looking at for these months, yay, I believe a little over a year now, in which he exhorted his readers and, by extension, us, to be hopeful because in every day... And in his sovereignty, God remembers and will fulfill all of his promises. Now, Zechariah was thinking particularly about that day, the day of the Lord, the coming day. And so when he uses the word day in, in Zechariah, he is typically thinking about that future day in, in which God will fulfill his promises. But he also has some more short-term views and he's reminding them, God will care for you Today. And that truth about God's provision both now and then is true for us today as well. One of the most significant aspects of the book of Zechariah is the name Zechariah itself. Zechariah's name means God remembers. And both the name and the message then of the prophet were the same. God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten his promise to Abraham. God will fulfill his covenant promises. And specifically, God will remember to install his king, the Messiah, on his throne in Israel out of his faithfulness to himself and out of his loyalty and his love for his people. So every time the people saw Zechariah, they were prompted to think, Zechariah, God remembers. And every time they heard Zachariah's message, they heard, God remembers. God is faithful. God will keep His promises. One of the most significant aspects of the book is that emphasis of God's care for His people in that day, in the coming millennial kingdom. And when you take that idea, God remembers Zechariah, and in that day, and combine them, you find this idea that the hearers of the message can be confident to endure in their present circumstances because of the faithfulness of God He remembers. Last week we finished the exposition of this book. This morning I want to do, as I have said, a final flyover of the book to remind ourselves of three primary lessons to remember well three primary lessons to remember from the book of Zechariah i need a slide flip guys in the back thanks we'll get there three primary lessons to, lessons to remember from the book of Zechariah there we go <laughs> Number one, remember, remember the message of Zechariah. Remember the message of Zechariah. And specifically, let us remember the history into which the messages are spoken. Remember the history. So let's just do a little background, remind ourselves of the context in which Zechariah is writing this book. Remember, the nation of Israel was initially created as 12 tribes and the 12 tribes after the reign of Solomon were divided into two distinct kingdoms. The northern kingdoms comprising of the ten northern tribe, tribes, and then the southern kingdom that is commonly called Judah, um, comprising the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. The northern tribes that is that are commonly called Israel in the Old Testament were consistently rebellious of all the kings, none of them was good. Every single king they had was evil. So late in the 8th century B.C., the Assyrian army was sent by God to attack Israel. Those 10 tribes were defeated and they were taken into captivity in 722 B.C. into Assyria. At the same time, Judah had a combination of both good kings and godly kings. They, There was a mixture, a blending, if you will, of goodness and godliness in its leadership. And then following the the good reign of Hezekiah, there were a series of evil kings over Judah. And in 2 Kings chapter 20, God warns Judah that because of their rebellion, that Judah also would be taken into captivity. And sure enough, in 605, about 120 years after Israel, Judah also is taken into captivity, this time by Babylon, not Assyria. Assyria had been taken over by Babylon. And in that deportation in 605 B.C., a number of the key leaders of Israel, including men like Daniel, were taken into captivity. That was followed up by two subsequent deportations, 597-586 B.C. In case you're worried, there will not be a test over the dates at the end of this message. But just to give you a little bit of context. While the nation of Judah was being disciplined by God for her rebellion. At the same time, Jeremiah 25 tells us that God will bless the nation and after 70 years of captivity, the nation would be brought back from Babylon and re-inhabit the promised land. Daniel remembers that promise. Daniel chapter 9, he prays. God answers that prayer and God lays it on the heart of ungodly King Cyrus and Cyrus not only allows the people to return, but he blesses them and provides for them in their return. And we find that return beginning in 536 B.C., exactly 70 years after the beginning of the deportation in 605, just as God promised. And you just take a deep breath and you think, it's all good, except it wasn't. Now, under the ministry of Ezra, under which they went back to Israel from Babylon, they immediately restored the sacrificial system. We have that in Ezra chapter 3, and that was good. They laid the foundation for the temple immediately. Again, that's at the end part of Ezra chapter 3. And both those things were good, righteous, godly things to do. But at the end of that laying of the foundation, opposition from the inhabitants of the region that were not Israelites began to oppress them, to work against them, to threaten them. And the people felt discouraged and they abandoned the project. We we find the weight of what's going on in Ezra chapter 4, Ezra chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 then the people of the land, that is the non-Israelites who lived in that region, the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And thus begins 20 years of apathy and fear. And so in order to encourage the people to rebuild the temple, God sent those two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to motivate them to rebuild the temple. And chapters 1 to 7 were written around the year 520 B.C. as an exhortation to build the temple. And then the remaining chapters, chapters 8 through 14, are written later, probably multiple years after that. So as we think about the history of what's going on, I, I give you all of that just to remind you That Zechariah is written against this backdrop of rebellion and discipline and now restoration followed by more fear and more rebellion. What will Zechariah say to the recently returned and re-discouraged nation? Here's where we need to remember not just the history, but we need to remember the the message of the visions. Chapters 1 to 6 ...are perhaps some of the most difficult parts of this book in interpreting and understanding. There are eight visions in these six chapters. And when we say visions, we don't mean it's a dream. It is a vision. The person that receives the vision is very much awake and he sees something that is not immediately real in the context though it may become real in the future, it is something that he sees, he interacts with, he is alert and attentive, he's not sleeping. This isn't too much pizza on Saturday night. This is God's direct revelation, God's speech to him. And as we look at these visions, they all have individual meanings, they all have individual messages, but they are corporately or Cumulatively given to us to reveal something about the provision of God for his people the ultimate success of their work and to reveal the character of God to them what makes him trustworthy. So very quickly we took a lot of time going through chapters 1 through 6. Let me see if I can do it in about two minutes chapter 1. Verses seven to seventeen, we have the vision of a man on a red horse, which emphasizes Yahweh's dominion over Israel's rebuilding and His jealousy for His people. And in one fourteen, in each of these visions, let me give you one or two verses to help you capture the importance of that vision. One fourteen. So the angel who was speaking to me, Zechariah says, said to me, "Proclaim." Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very angry with the nations who are at ease, for I was only a little angry, and then they furthered the disaster. In other words, the, the nations were doing what God called them to do against the nation of Israel and God, in God's discipline of them, but they went too far and God was angered at them for the distance at which they went because he was jealous to preserve his people. He wanted to keep his people. Second vision, 118 to 21. It's the vision of the four horns and the four craftsmen emphasizing Yahweh's judgment on the nations for the persecution of Israel. We find that at the end of verse 21 particularly. Uh, These craftsmen have come to terrify them to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. So here we find... God, again, working against the nations, judging the nations. Third vision, chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. It's the vision of the surveyor, which emphasizes Yahweh's bright future for Jerusalem. In fact, note the the glory, literally, that is seen in the middle of this vision, 2-5. For I declares the Lord will be a wall of fire around her, around Jerusalem, and I will be the glory in her midst. Now that doesn't really have its powerful impact on you unless you remember Ezekiel chapter 10 and remember that Ezekiel's vision in chapter 10 is he saw the departure of the glory of God from the temple and from Jerusalem for the rebellion of Israel God said in a sense I'm done and he leaves and here Zachariah says the glory is coming back And the glory of God's glory, not just coming back, is not just that it was for the nation of Israel. Notice verse 11 at the end of this vision. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. And then I will dwell in your midst and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So even the nations are attracted to the glory, and have God as their God. Fourth vision, chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. This is the cleansing of the high priest that emphasizes that Yahweh requires holy worship and he will provide the needed cleansing and the removal of sin that enables holy worship. Chapter 3, verse 4. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. That's the removal of sin and the imputation of righteousness. And in the context, we saw that it was related to the work of Christ on the cross. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 14, we have the vision of the gold lampstand and the two olive trees emphasizing Yahweh's provision that safeguards Israel's future. And here we have one of the key Old Testament glimpses into the provision of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We find that in verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might and not by power, but by my spirit says the Lord. So God will provide for his people through his spirit. We find something similar in chapter 7. Verse 12, if you're interested to look at that later. Sixth vision, chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Here we have the flying scroll that emphasizes God's judgment on Israel for the breaking of the covenant that he had made with her. Chapter 5, verse 4, I will make it go forth, declares the Lord of hosts, the scroll of judgment, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name, and it will spend the night in that house, and it will consume with its timber and stones. A vivid picture of what God's judgment looks like for those who violate his commandments. Chapter 5, verses 5 to 11, the seventh vision, the woman in the basket emphasizing that Yahweh removes sin from Israel's midst. Verse 11 is your key verse in that section. Then he said to me to build a temple for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. So this is not a place of blessing, but it is a place of judgment in which God is removing sin and taking sin to Babel or Babylon, if you will, uh, where sin will reside. Chapter six, verses one to eight, the last vision the vision of the four chariots emphasizing Yahweh's sovereignty over all creation and His judgment of the nations. Again, verses 7 and 8. And these horses, the strong ones, went out and they were eager to go out and to patrol the earth. And He said, Go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. And He cried out to me and He spoke to me saying, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath in the land of the north. My wrath, my judgment, is appeased. So in all these eight visions, while there is some difficulty in understanding all of the particulars of them, what is clear is the message of God's unceasing care of His people, His absolute sovereignty over all things, and His purposefulness to complete His redemptive plan. And so the people that are that are weary and fearful and timid to finish rebuilding the temple, now have been reminded God will see you through this. Get on with the task that he's given you. The next main section of the book is given to us in verses 7 and 8, or chapter 7 and 8 rather, and it is the message of the question. We might actually call it the message of the foolish question. And because the exiled people had returned to Babylon, there was a delegation that came from Bethel to the priests and asked if they could stop fasting. Evidently, what had happened is that while they were in captivity, they started fasting, looking forward to the time when they would be able to be restored to the land of Israel. And now that they were restored, they're saying, can we stop fasting? Now, it's interesting and important, frankly, to note that apart from fasting on the Day of Atonement, there are no mandated fasts in the Old Testament. This is all voluntary. It's not, it's not imperative that they fast. It wasn't imperative in Babylon. It's not imperative in Israel. And so they were fasting perhaps out of initially some kind of conviction and, and then ultimately out of some kind of rote obedience, some kind of habitual participation in this process that really was disconnected from the reality of their fellowship with God. And so they came, chapter 7, verse 3, and asked the question shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain if I, as I have done these many years? Do we have to keep fasting, weeping every month on the fifth month? We actually find out later in this chapter that they were fasting four months out of every year and they'd done that for 70 years. And they asked the question, can we stop? Can we be done with this? I don't know if they asked it as sarcastically as I just did, but it, it, it has that tone to it. We, ju- we, just, we just don't want to be done. And God doesn't answer them Directly, He asks them questions. That's always a dangerous place when God starts asking you questions. That's penetrating. And that's what He does. Chapter 7, verse 5. Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, these 70 years, was it actually for me that you fasted? Did you really want me? Implied. Or did you want something else? And you would have been satisfied without me. Are you fasting for the glory of the Lord? Verse 6. Second question. When you eat and drink, do you not eat for yourselves? And do you not drink for yourselves? It's his way of asking, aren't you Fasting and feasting ultimately for your glory. It's all about you and what you want. Isn't that what's going on? They missed the intent and the purpose of the discipline of fasting. And the discipline of fasting is that it it orients our hearts toward God. It's our way of saying, I don't want this stuff, typically food. I want to know the mind of the Lord. I want to be in fellowship with him. I want him. And they missed that point. What God wants is a repentant, heartfelt worship. He talks about that in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Thus says the Lord of hosts to these men Dispense true justice, practice kindness and compassion, each to his brother. Do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. It's about the heart. That's what he wants. He reiterates the same thing in chapter 8. Again, it's the same section. Chapter 8, verse 16. These are the things which you ought to do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and with judgment for peace in your gates. And let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. Do not love perjury, for all these are what I hate, declares the Lord. That's why he called them at the beginning of the book, in chapter 1, 3 to 4, what we read at the beginning of the service this morning, why he called them to Repentance. He will not be worshiped as a means to a greater end because he is the greatest end. And any other kind of worship, other than that kind of worship, that recognizes that he is ultimate is a false worship. And yet, even in the midst of their folly, we see the graciousness of God. Look at verse 15. I purpose to do harm when your fathers provoked me to wrath. Verse 14, verse 15. So, in same way, I have again purposed in these days to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. Verse 19. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth months, will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and justice. In the midst of their rebellion, their fear, their asking the wrong questions, their lack of desire for God, in the midst of that, he still says, I'm a God of grace to my people. Oh, brothers and sisters, see that grace. That is always available to us. The last main section of this book that we must remember is the message of the oracles. The message of the oracles. That's chapters 9 to 14. Chapters 9 to 11 are an oracle against the nations. Now an oracle is an authoritative pronouncement. Typically it's seen as weighty and sober. It's often judgment and wrath. And uh, and we find that very aspect in these chapters, chapters 9 to 11. It is an oracle against the nations as an affirmation of his unrelenting acts to preserve the nation of Israel. So verses 1 to 7 of chapter 9, we find his wrath against the Philistines. Then verse 8, after that wrath is articulated, verse 8, he says... But I will camp around my house, Israel, because of an army, because of him who passes by and returns and no oppressor will pass over them anymore. For now I have seen with my eyes the nations are coming and I am going to judge them in an effort to preserve and protect my people. At the end of this section in chapter 11, we find the nations being used by God and even the ultimate antichrist to be used by God as judgment against and discipline against Israel. We find that in verse 16. I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for the perishing, who will not seek the scattered, will not heal the broken or sustain the one standing, but will devour the flesh of the fat sheep and tear off their hooves. So here is judgment against the nation of Israel for their disobedience and rebellion at the end of the tribulation by the Antichrist. And even then, he says, verse 17, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword will be on his arm and on his right eye, and his arm will be totally withered, and his right eye will be blind. Here is God, even then, even while disciplining his people, protecting his people and caring for his people through his discipline, of the antichrist that's the oracle of chapters 9 to 11 there's another final oracle in this book it is chapters 12 to 14 it is not an oracle against israel it is instead an oracle a weighty word for israel it is god's declaration of his care for the nation he will see them through their time of uncertainty he will see them through the rebuilding of the temple and he will see them into the millennial kingdom God's weighty and joyful message is one of hopes for the nation of Israel. So, chapter twelve, verse two: the nations will be defeated. Thus declares the Lord of hosts: Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to the peoples all around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And all who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. And we find that progressing on to where we find the, the deliverance of Israel and the, the, the destruction of the nations. Not only will Israel's enemies be defeated, but in this section we also find that Israel will repent. That's verse 10 of chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So he gives grace that leads to a prayer of petition. So they will look on me whom they have pierced. Who's that? That's the Messiah Christ at his first incarnation. And they will mourn for him. As one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And as a result of their weeping and repentance, Israel will be restored by God to her land. That's verse 6 of chapter 12. And all of these things come to final fruition in the last chapter that we read earlier this morning, culminating in verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. That's the message. The Lord is King, and He will be King, and you can trust Him. Let's remember, as we leave this book, the message of the book that God has intended us to hear. Let us also remember the purpose of Zechariah. The purpose of Zechariah. Said very simply The purpose of Zechariah, the reason Zechariah writes, is to bring people of Israel to repentance for their fear and apathy about rebuilding the temple and to give them hope that God will accomplish all his plans as king over Israel. He writes to give the people, to produce in the people, to lead the people to repentance so that they turn away from their apathy, their fear, And they turn to him, to God, in trust that the Messiah will come as king. And the theme of Zechariah in that sense is very similar to what we saw in Romans when we went through the book of Romans in chapter 11. And the reminder that Paul gives in Romans 11 that verse 26, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There will be a generation in Israel when the entire nation will as a complete nation turn to its Messiah for salvation and be saved. Praise God. And he's pointing to that. That the Zechariah is pointing to that and reminding them about God's faithfulness to bring that about. One writer has said that the message of hope for Zechariah or from Zechariah was at a time when the situation in Judah could hardly have appeared could hardly have appeared worse. The situation was bleak, desperate. But for God, the circumstances were bright for the hope of his coming. He would accomplish everything that he desired. One, one writer calls Zechariah quote, the prophet of hope and encouragement in troublous times. And well, that's a good message for us as well. Because I think you live in the same world I live in, and I look out at the world and I say, that's a troubling world and we have hope in that world. What is the hope that we look to? Well, let's remember as we depart this book some of the lessons of Zechariah. What are the lessons that the Israelites could glean and what hope can we have reading this book some 2,500 years later? Well, lesson number one, remember God's revelation of his character. The Scriptures are given to us as special revelation. It's a particular kind of revelation. It's a disclosure of God's purposes. It's a revelation that God has for us. He's revealing something that we need to know. And preeminently, the Scriptures are given to us to reveal His character and nature... So every time you open the book, be asking the question, what do I see here about the character and the nature of God? Because that's what he wants us to see. And what do we see about God's character in this book? Well, there's lots to be seen, but let me point you to three realities about God's character. One, he is unrelentingly righteous. What do you mean by that, Terry? I simply mean God will judge sin, period. Most often we see God's judgment in Zechariah as a judgment against the nations. It starts in chapter 1. We've already alluded to that. Chapter 1, verse sixteen. He says, verse 15, God says, I was a little angry at the nations except they furthered the disaster. They, they went beyond what they were supposed to do against Israel. Therefore, verse 16 of chapter 1, Thus says the Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, Thus does the Lord of hosts. My cities will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And at the end of verse 21, he will scatter the nations. And we we find that scattering all through this book. Chapter 9. Verse 4, Behold, the Lord will dispossess her, Tyre, and cast her wealth into the sea, and she will be consumed with fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, will writhe in pain. Also Ekron, for her expectation has been confounded. Moreover, the king will perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon will not be inhabited. And a mongrel race will dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride from the Philistines. That seems pretty thorough to me. I don't know about you. And it's God's unrelenting judgment, his discipline against the nations. Chapter 10, verse 11, he will pass through the sea of distress. He will strike the waves in the sea so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up and the fight of Assyria will be brought down and the scepter of Egypt will depart. It's judgment, it's wrath, it's discipline. But we also see God's discipline and God's judgment even against his people, Israel, for their rebellion, for their apathy. Chapter 7, verse 11, they refused, speaking about the previous generation of Israel, he says, they refused to pay attention, they turned a stubborn shoulder, they stopped their ears from hearing, they made their their hearts like flint, so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets, and therefore great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. We find that again, we've already alluded to it, chapter 11, verse 16, God using in the final days the antichrist to discipline his people for their rebellion against him and all these things combined to remind us of God's hatred and his intolerance of sin he cannot abide it he cannot abide live with it and he won't there are at least two implications for us from that one God's hatred of sin is a comfort to us. It's a comfort. How so? It's a comfort because He's not overlooking sin. He has not suddenly become incapable of dealing with it. He is being patient. He is waiting for repentance. But He will not wait eternally. It will be judged and for those of us who are in Christ, that's a comfort. That everything that is wrong will be made right. As one writer said it, everything that is untrue will be made true. And that's our comfort. There's a second implication that comes from God's unrelenting righteousness. And it is that God's hatred of sin is a warning to us. And the warning is that he will not overlook sin endlessly. He will judge all sin And He will judge all sinners. And my friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ and you may think, you know, my life seems to be going along pretty well and I know I'm not really following Christ. Christ really isn't important to me but honestly, life's pretty good. That's God's kindness to you. But if you do not change and you do not repent, He will judge you for your sin. You cannot live with impunity. You will be punished, and it will be eternal, and it will be unimaginably harsh. Oh, friend, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I exhort you, compel you, do exactly what the Israelites did. Chapter 12, verse 10, turn to Christ in humility and say, it's my sin for which you died. Would you, because of your death, forgive me of my sin? And enable me to follow you in obedience and joy. And he will save you and he will liberate you from your sin. Oh friend, if you've never trusted, would you trust him? He is unrelenting in his righteousness towards sin. Second aspect of God's character to remember. Remember that God is unfathomably gracious. For all of the discipline and judgment and wrath in this book, do not overlook the emphasis on God's grace. At times, as you look at circumstances, it's easy to think God just doesn't care. He lacks compassion. Chapter 1, verse 12, the angel of the Lord even says it. The angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and for the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? Don't you care? Don't you love? The Lord answered the angel who was speaking with me, verse 13 and 14, with gracious words, comforting words. And so the angel who was speaking with me said to me, proclaim, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I am compassionate. I do love. I do care. And we don't have time to trace it all down, but maybe take an hour this afternoon or an hour sometime this week and just reread through the book of Zechariah and mark every passage where you see an evidence of God's grace. And I think you will be astounded at how much grace you will find in this book. We find it I'll give you some tips one sixteen two five three four four seven eight two eight 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 eleven to thirteen, eight fifteen, eight twenty one, nine twelve, ten six, twelve ten. And all of chapter fourteen. And you will you'll just be overwhelmed. God cares. He's compassionate. He was compassionate then. That's his nature. He's unchanging. He's compassionate today. Even despite Israel's repeated sins, even in their fearfulness, even in their fearfulness in rebuilding the temple upon the return from Babylon. He keeps them, He preserves them, He's compassionate, He cares. It's a reminder to us that His provision is never obligated. His provision is never gained through merit. He loves because He is gracious. It's His nature, it is uncompelled, and it is lavish. He cares third aspect of God's character I want you to see it is that he is uncontestedly sovereign I needed an unword and this is the best I came up with Uh, Microsoft Word said I made that word up and I think I did but it makes sense if you think about it he is sovereign in such a way that no one can contest or resist his sovereignty Chapter 12 verse 1, He is the Creator and Sovereign of all things, of earth and heaven and mankind. Chapter 12 verse 5, He is the Support and Sustainer of Israel and all men. Chapter 6 verse 5, He is the Lord of all the earth. And preeminently in this book, what's the title that we have for Yahweh in this book? Tell me. The Lord of Hosts. 53 times. Out of the 265 times that that title is used in the Old Testament, exactly 20% of them appear in these 14 chapters. Zechariah wants us to see that God is the God of the armies. He is the sovereign over the armies in heaven. He is the sovereign over the armies on the earth. He is the sovereign over the armies under the earth. There is no army that can resist him. He's the king. You can trust him. And he has ultimate authority and he has ultimate power. So that when we get to chapter 14 and it says, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle, where to hear the Lord of hosts showed up. And he won't be defeated. It's uncontested. You can trust him. Oh, brothers and sisters, as we leave this book, remember the character of God that we have seen flourish in this book. Remember as well God's provision for today. Remember, Zechariah was written at a particular time to discourage and fearful people. You you might know a fearful person, somebody. I think there might be like two fearful people in Granberry. You might know them. And Israel is just like that. Just saturated with fearfulness, discouragement, despondency. And they're concerned, yeah, we're back in the land, but what has that gotten us? Just more oppression, more resistance, more suffering. I don't know, the text doesn't tell us, but I don't know, but that somebody probably said, we'd be better off back in Babylon. Babylon. And I know that from my own heart. I also know that that's the history of Israel. As soon as they, got, as soon as they left Egypt and a little bit of oppression, oh, let, let's go back to, to Egypt and the, the leeks and the cucumbers. And it's, the, it's the nature of the human heart. And so Zechariah is written in the midst of that. They gave up on the building of the temple. Sat dormant almost 20 years. And he addresses the need of the day, not just the future day. Now, the the book focuses in that day, on the day of the Lord, the coming millennial kingdom. But he doesn't ignore the need of the day as well. And he tells them, the temple will be rebuilt. God will provide for you. Chapter 4, verse 9. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts, the unrelentingly, uncontestedly sovereign one has sent me to you. And you'll know he's provided. Chapter eight, verse nine. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who are listening. In these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets, those who spoke in the day that laid the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be built. Verse 13, it will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you so that you will be a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. Keep building. It'll get done. And it's a reminder to us that God is not insensitive to us with our temporal needs. And it's easy as a preacher or it's easy as a counselor to say one day it will get better. Maybe, maybe in 10 years, but we know in 100 years in eternity it will be better. And that's true. And we need to anchor our hearts there. But brothers and sisters, cares for us today too. He provides for us today. Remember what Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 6? Just look at the flowers and look at the birds. And look how beautifully the, the flowers are ornamented and how beautifully they're dressed. The Lord did that. And look at the birds. Birds don't have Kroger to go to and they don't have a storage system and a delivery system, but they have food. The Kroger's, that's my part, not Jesus'. He, he provides. He cares. He's compassionate for your needs today. And He was compassionate for His needs for Israel in that day as well. Remember, God provides today. Remember as well God's provision for Israel tomorrow. He will provide for Israel tomorrow. God will restore His people to the land of promise. And they will dwell there eternally with their king. Chapter thirteen, eight: It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring about the third part through fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name. And I will answer them and I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. He will see them into the land and he will fulfill his promise to Abraham. He's not forgotten. He remembers and he will preserve his people. God will provide for Israel tomorrow. Watch this. Remember God's provision for the nations tomorrow. The temple would be rebuilt in Zechariah's day. But there's a new and greater temple that is coming. And there is a unique one who is coming who will serve as a king in that temple And fulfill his role, unique role, as both priest and king. Verse 13 of chapter 6. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he who will bear the honor and will sit and rule on his throne. You have king, you have thrones and palaces. You have thrones and kingdoms. You don't have thrones and temples. But in this temple, there's a throne for the king. Because, verse 13, he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two offices. He will reign as priest and king The only one ever in history to be able to do that. And from that conjoinment of those two roles, peace will flow from his priestly throne. Why? Because he is the Messiah who died to bring about peace between God and man. And that is coming not just for Israel... But that temple where the priest-king reigns will become a pilgrimage point for the nations. Chapter 8. I don't know how many times we've read this section as we've made our way through the book, but it's been a bunch. And we've read it again this morning because it's so pivotal. pivotal. Chapter 8, verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples, that's the nation's, that's the outsiders. That's the Gentiles. That's the non Israelites. They will come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one will go to another, saying, Let us go once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. And so many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. Isn't that a shift? From what happens in chapter 14 when they're coming to Jerusalem to vanquish and to wipe out the nation and God puts them down and instead those who remain come and flock not to take Israel out and Jerusalem out, but to come and worship the ruler of Israel. And so many nations and many peoples and mighty nations will come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts in those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of the Jews, saying, "Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you." The 10 to one is is designed to make us understand just the, the vastness of the numbers of people from the nations that will be converted in that day. Oh, tomorrow is coming, and it's good for Israel, and it's good for the nations as well. Remember one last thing: it's not in your notes. It came to me afterwards. How could you forget this, Terry? I don't know, but I did. So jot it somewhere on the side or at the bottom. One last remembrance. Remember God's provision of the king. Perhaps no theme is greater in the book of Zechariah than the coming king to rule his people, Israel. One commentator calls Zechariah, quote, the most messianic the most truly apocalyptic and eschatological of all the writings in the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament messianic book. It's all about the king and how he will rule. What does this book tell us about the Messiah? I think I posted this on a blog some time ago. I don't recall for sure. Let me run through it quickly. What does the book reveal about the Messiah? It reveals the servant's deity It reveals that he is the servant, the branch. He is the man, the branch. It reveals that he came in his first advent in lowliness. It reveals his priestliness. It reveals his kingship. It reveals that he is the true shepherd. It reveals that the shepherd was rejected and betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. It reveals him as the true shepherd in contrast with the false shepherd, the Antichrist. It reveals the betrayal of the Good Shepherd. It reveals the crucifixion of the Shepherd. It reveals His sufferings and being struck down by the Lord's sword. It reveals His second advent in glory. It reveals the building of the Lord's temple. It reveals His reign. It reveals His establishment of eternal peace and prosperity. The realities of Jesus as the Messiah and the King are designed to remind the Israelites they are safe. You can rebuild the temple Because the king is coming and you are safe. You have a king who is the Lord of hosts, who is the only priest and king who is coming in full authority and all will be well. It'll be well in their day. And in our day when there is trouble, we can say the same thing. All will be well. The king is coming. We came to this book anticipating the future, trusting the provision of God, looking to a savior. What do we remember from the book of Zechariah? We remember this. And every day, and in his sovereignty, God remembers, and he will fulfill his promises. You can trust him. Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for this majestic, hopeful, grace-filled, expectant book. I suppose many of us could say today we have neglected this book and overlooked it for too long. Thank you, Father, for the extended time we've been able to have in this book and to see the wonder of who you are. So let us in worship, so let us to humble tears, may it lead us to steadfastness, to being rooted, planted, secured, to the anchor of our souls, the Messiah, the King, the priest, the only one in whom there is peace, might we turn to him and no peace with God and no peace in our world? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.